Welcome to the podcast of the Believer's Bible Class, a part of the historic First Baptist Church located in downtown Dallas, Texas. For many years, we have been sending out our lessons from our longtime teacher, Doug Brady, who digs deeply into the scriptures, helping us to become better Christians and understanding the biblical teaching. We are beginning a new study found in the New Testament, a short book written by the Apostle Paul and sent to Timothy as instructions on leading the church. Class teacher Doug Brady has found this three-chapter book, which is shown as 2 Timothy, and it is filled with instructions on the church. You won't want to miss this wonderful study over the next few weeks. In this lesson number one, Doug brings us an introduction to this book and the expected information that will help us in our walk with the Lord. The Believer's Bible Class is part of the historic First Baptist Church located in downtown Dallas, Texas. Our class meets every Sunday morning at 9.15 in LaVorne Hall, located on the lower level of the new Worship Center building. Our class, which continues to grow every week, is so loved by the members that want to dig deeper into the biblical studies. And class teacher Doug Brady is known for digging even deeper as we learn so much. Well, I see that Doug is ready at the podium, so let's go into the classroom of the Believer's Bible class. Here now is our longtime teacher and my good friend, Doug Brady. One of the things in law school I had to learn was the Texas Rules of Evidence. Now, I can tell you that there's some idiot on the state bar and the Supreme Court who's now said, we're not going to teach or require on the bar exam to have Texas law tested anymore, just federal law or common law. And I thought, why do I want to hire any of those law students? But anyway, in almost every rules of evidence across this country, there is something called dying declarations. You know, they don't let hearsay in in court. But they have exceptions, and one of them is when somebody is about to die, we're going to listen to what they have to say. That is 2 Timothy. It is a dying declaration. And I want you to see how we're working on this and lay this foundation. To do this, we're going to need to answer eight questions. Eight questions today. Who wrote this book? Number two. What do we know about the author of this book? Number three, who is it written to? And and who's the initial audience? Number four is, when was the book written? And where does it fit into the chronology of the Bible? In other words, was this Paul's first book? Or was this Paul's last book? If Paul wrote it, I'm not telling you the answers ahead of time. (laughs) Next, what do we know about the initial audience? And after that, we want to ask ourselves, where was the author of this book when he wrote it? That makes a difference in a lot of things. And then we want to know, what was the author's purpose in writing this book? What did he really want to communicate and to whom? And then finally, we want to know what information is contained in this book. And so we're going to look carefully and try and answer these questions as we go along. And if we can answer them correctly, we will have a firm foundation for understanding this book. And that will be important to our study. And we will revert back to these facts that we're looking at. So first, who wrote the book? 
straightforward uh, question to answer. In 2 Timothy 1.1, it says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, uh uh-oh, by the will of God, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, according to the promise of life in Christ Jesus. Now, this is different to our culture. Let me ask you this for just a second. Jessica, if you were writing a letter, where would you put your name on that letter? At the end, sincerely, or love, or best wishes, Jessica Dalton. That's the way we do it. In the Greco-Roman times, you put your name at the very first of the letter so they could see exactly who it was coming from. Just a matter of culture. And that's what they did. And so Paul started out that way. Secondly, what do we know about the author of this book? Is this a rather unknown character in the Bible? No, this is a very well-known character. We know a great deal about him. How many names did he have? Two names. What was his given name by his mother? Saul. Saul. Now, did the Lord change his name to another name? No. Not just not really. No. When you are a Roman citizen and his father was a Roman citizen, Paul inherited that citizenship from his father, which was very valuable in those days to be a Roman citizen. You also have to be listed in your town's directory of Roman citizens and you need a Roman name. And it's Paulus was his Roman given Roman name. And of course, we transliterated that to Paul. So those were his two names. It wasn't changed like Peter's, Simon, Peter, uh, where his name was changed by the Lord. Or Jacob, where his name was changed to Israel by the Lord. This was two names he started out with because one was by his Jewish mother and the other was by his Roman Greek father. Now, he grew up in a town named Tarsus and he was registered there. Now, you will notice in this, you notice in this verse that he is claiming to be an apostle and an apostle of Christ Jesus. And that brings up some questions we need to answer. What is an apostle? Now, have anybody heard of somebody who claims to be an apostle today? Well, I want to put this very gently. They don't know what the heck they're talking about. (laughs) Or if they do, then they're a liar and a deceiver. There are no more apostles today. An apostle was a gift given by God to the early church. What the apostle said to you was considered to be inspired word of God. When would there come a time when we didn't need that gift anymore? When we had a completed canon. Once we have the Bible... It's not in first Corinthians chapter 13. It says, now we see through the glass darkly, but when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away with. Now you say the perfect, that must be Jesus, right? No, you need to look at that word. Is it in masculine or neuter? If it's masculine, it would be referring to Jesus. But if it's neuter, it's referring to the scripture and that's what it is. And you would see that same word for perfect, not used as a, as a noun, but as an adjective in uh, Ephesians chapter 5, where it talks about the husband and the wife, and he washes her with the perfect word of God. Now, 
we have that and we come to understand there's not apostles. Then the next question, well, if there's not any apostles any longer, how many apostles were there? Now, this has been debated among religious or conservative scholars even for quite some time because there are ways of understanding this. For example, some people think there could have been as many as 24. And, you know, we all understand that 11 of the disciples, 11 of the disciples became apostles. And then if you consider that Paul was one, you have 12. Some people want to say Matthias, who was elected by Peter and the boys, was an apostle. Others want to say James, the brother of Jesus, was an apostle. In Galatians 1.19, those who take this position, they rely on that. It says, but I did not see any other of the apostles except James, the Lord's brother. Now, in the way that's translated in English, it seems to make it clear that James was an apostle. In the Greek, it's not so clear. It's ambiguous. I didn't see any of the other apostles, but I did see James, the brother of Jesus. He had never met him before. So it can go either way. People who think there's only 12 rely on what's written in uh, Revelation chapter 21, verse 14, where it says, and the wall of the city, that's the new Jerusalem, had 12 foundation stones. And on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. Notice the repetition of 12, because they're making an emphasis on that. There's just 12. There's 12 foundation stones. There's 12 apostles. There's 12 names. And it's the apostles. You know, it's a definite article. I tend to go the way that there's only 12. But... I'm going to get raptured no matter which way I, I think it is. So, you know, that's not as a big of a concern to me. Now, one of the concerns, though, for Paul being an apostle is this. There were some understood rules for being an apostle. You had to be saved, of course. And you had to have spent three years with Jesus training. And you had to see the risen Christ. Now, the 11, did they all see the uh, risen Christ? Yes, they did. Did they uh, spend three years with him training? Yes, they did. Maybe more. We don't know exactly. But what about Paul? Number one, did he see the risen Christ? Oh, on the road to Damascus he did, didn't he? But when did he spend three years training with Jesus? Oh, well... Paul wrote something about that again in the book of Galatians. Let me read it to you. You'll find it in the first chapter, verse 15. But when God, who had set me apart from my mother's womb and called me through his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult flesh and blood, nor did I go up to Jerusalem, who those were apostles before me. I went away to Arabia... Now, let's stop right there. What, Steve, could possibly be in Arabia that Paul would want to go to? Mount Horeb. Mount Horeb. You mean the same place where God took Moses first to show him the burning bush? The place where God had Moses bring the people back? And wait, didn't we just study Elijah? When Elijah was in trouble and down, where did God take him? 
Mount Horeb. Exactly. Three years he spent there at that place, uh, Mount Horeb, or if you want to call it Mount Sinai, you may, but it's not on the Sinai Peninsula. And then three years later, I went up to Jerusalem to become acquainted with Cephas. That's interesting. Paul calls Peter Cephas. Why would he call him Cephas? That's the Aramaic or Hebrew name for rock, where Peter was. Uh, so he's calling him by a Jewish word. I went just with Cephas and stayed with him for 15 days. And in fact, I want you to consider Paul's description of himself in 1 Corinthians, starting in verse 8, chapter 15. And last of all, he's talking about the people who saw Jesus after he was raised from the dead. And last of all, as one untimely born, he appeared to me also. For I am the least of the apostles and not fit to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. Now, let's step back and talk about this man in reference to all of history. All of history. Paul was the greatest missionary to ever exist. I want you to think about this a minute. The greatest missionary. I'm going to suggest to you that if Paul had not existed, you wouldn't be saved Unless the missionaries came from China and won you to the Lord. Now, wait, how would you be willing to say so? Let's start this way. On one of his missionary journeys, he founded a church in Ephesus. And there in that church of Ephesus, uh, he spent a great deal of time, like two years. Now, in Acts chapter 19, starting in verse 9, it says this. But, but when some were becoming hardened and disobedient, that is, Jewish people uh, in the synagogue. Speaking evil of the way before the people, he withdrew from them, and he took away the disciples, and reasoning daily in the school of Tyrannus, it took place for two years. So what he is doing is in this school, he is training people. Now, what do you think he's training people to do? To disciple people. Now, you hear that word disciple. How should we understand that to mean? Three things. Winning, that is winning people to the Lord. Building, building people up in the word of God. And three, sending, sending people out. What was Paul's design for the church? You win somebody, you bring them into the church, you train them and you build them and you send them out into the world. To win more people who can be brought back in the church to be built and then sent out again. That was Paul's design. That's the design all the churches should follow. So it took place for two years so that all who lived in Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. And God was performing miraculous miracles in the hands of Paul so that handkerchiefs or aprons were carried from his body to the sick and the diseases left them, and the evil spirits went out. Now, he says all of Asia. Now, his meaning of Asia and your me Luke's meaning of Asia and your meaning of Asia is two different things. You think of that whole continent of Asia. That's not what they thought. Let me show you a map here. This is Asia. It's really Turkey. But what is he saying? Everybody in Turkey, everybody in Asia Minor, heard the word of the Lord during those two years. He's got to be winning and sending out a lot of people. But that's what was happening. 
And then there came a time on a missionary journey when Paul wanted very, very much to go east. If he had gone east, what would have happened? Just think about that just a second. But God said no. And so he came up to Mycenae, and there was a vision he got, and he went over to Europe. And as a result of Europe, his time in Europe, Europe became Christian. If Europe hadn't become Christian, you wouldn't be Christian. Because where did Christian America originate? From Christian Europe. He wanted to go to the east. God said, no, I've got some people like Kansas Lindsay over here. They're going to exist in America, and I want them. And they will then start sending out missionaries to the east. That's what God wanted. But he was the greatest missionary to ever live. That's the first thing I want you to see about him. He was also the greatest theologian to ever live. There is no theologian who could We would know hardly anything about what God wanted for the church if he hadn't written the 13 epistles. We would know very little about theology if he had not written the book of Romans. The book of Romans is the most superb theology, book of theology ever written. Now, you can say, well, of course, it was inspired by the Holy Spirit. Yes, but that's what makes him the greatest theologian to ever live. I want you to think about that. It's amazing what's all is in that book, his masterpiece of Romans. Now, let's go to the third question. Who was the book written to? That is, what and who was its initial audience? Well, in 1 Timothy 1, chapter 2, it tells us, to Timothy, my beloved son. Now, wait a second. My beloved son. Was Timothy Paul's son? Ah, yes and no is the answer. You know, my wife hates that answer when I give it to her. But, you know, it's yes and no. Biological son, no. Spiritual son, go back to the map. Can we do that? He, you see down at the bottom, you see Lycia and Pamphylia right in there. That's where Timothy's from. And that was where the first missionary journey one went. And Paul won Timothy to the Lord. That's why he's his spiritual son. And the ministry was going to carry on. And he took him on missionary journeys. He trained him, Timothy, over and over. Can you imagine traveling with somebody like Paul? You think, and watching what he's doing, you think you would learn something? Sure. Absolutely. He, he would say, I'm going to be praying tonight. You want to join me? You know, I'd probably say, yeah, until I fell asleep. He said, don't worry, I'll wake you. But that's, that's what he's doing. And Paul talks about this man, Timothy. He came from a godly family and a very spiritual family. If you look in verse 5 of the first chapter, it says, For I am mindful of the sincere faith within you, that is you, Timothy, which first dwelt in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and I am sure that it is well in you. Now, I want you to think about this just a second because this is very, very important. In this verse, who does he attribute the spiritual background needed to make a man of God who God can really use? Who did he contribute that to? Why was the mother in that position? 
by her mother. And who was, was it saying only the mother taught Timothy? No, grandmothers are a wonderful source of spiritual training. I know a grandmother who feels extremely responsible for seven grandchildren. And she pours her life into them. And she teaches them. And I have seen one of those become one of the most aggressive spiritual evangelists I've ever met. Uh, one, one of her uh, relatives said, you know, this girl has got a little strange. Why do you say that? Well, we were in the park, and she started going around talking to people about Jesus. That's because she recognizes what's eternity and what's temporary. And she is amazing. But it's because, I believe, of how that wonderful girl had been helped by her grandmother. Not that she didn't have godly parents. I know the influence of my mother on my two boys. Now, he grew up in Lystra. And he accompanied Paul in a couple of missionary journeys. So when was this book written? And where does it fit in in the biblical chronology? We need to understand, because we want to see how long after Jesus died did he write, this was the last book that Paul wrote, the last book. It was written around 67 AD. Now, how many books did Paul write? 13. It's really easy to remember how this works. One, he wrote one book on the first missionary journey. He wrote two books on the second missionary journey. He wrote three books on the third missionary journey. Then he was put under house arrest in Rome. He wrote four books. After he was released, he wrote two books. They arrested him again and put him in the dungeon, and he wrote one book, 2 Timothy, the last book he wrote. And I want you to see, you can remember that, just one, two, three, four, two, one. Easy like that. Now, what do we know about the initial audience? Well, the most important fact to know is this. Paul had decided that there needed to be a key pastor at the church of Ephesus. The church of Ephesus, you remember, was the one that spread the gospel all over Asia Minor. And we need one there. And because he was an apostle, he could do this. You know, they weren't Baptist and taking a vote. He appointed Timothy as the pastor. So Timothy is the pastor of the church of Ephesus. Paul wrote three letters in that regard. Ephesians, 1 Timothy, and 2 Timothy. But 1 and 2 Timothy are called pastoral epistles because they were written first to the pastor, telling him what to do and how to do it. And we need to, to see the importance of that. But certainly Timothy shared the contents of this letter with the church and Ephesus. And every New Testament pastor and church needs to be familiar with these writings of 1 and 2 Timothy. They tell us so much about what to do. 1 Timothy more how to run the church. 2 Timothy what you're not to do and what you need to be prepared for. And it's good. we're going to learn about the preparation of, for what's coming and what he says is going to come. Now, 
Where was the author of this book when he penned it? He was in prison in Rome. Now, his initial prison term was in a, under house arrest. And he was chained to some Praetorian guards. And, you know, they would have a guard unit of four guards for four hours. And they wouldn't let the guards stay there any longer than four hours because they were afraid they might become friends with the prisoner. So four on, and then they'd have another four that would come, and then another four and another four. So a 24-hour cycle of four hours each. How do you think Paul felt about that? He loved it. Why? Because that is 16 guards that he can share his faith with. And then when they change them out every so often, here comes another six. And in fact, he says that there's a number of praetorian guards who are now members of the church because he won them to the Lord. And so that was a great time. He could write books and stuff. This time he was in a dungeon. Now, in a Roman dungeon, do you have any civil rights? Is there any Geneva Convention? Is there any of those kind of things? He wrote one book, one book only in that dungeon. And he knew he was about to die. Now, there's different stories. It's not recorded in the scripture, I don't believe, how he died. Anybody know what tradition has it, how he died? I think he was made to swallow molten lead. Not probably exact the most pleasant drink to imbibe. But, you know, before you die, your insides are being burned out. But did Paul know that was coming? Well, look in 2 Timothy 4, 6. It says, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. In the future, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me but also to all have loved his appearing. Loved his appearing. There's going to be a crown that you can win, that a reward you can be given if you just love his appearing? Yes. Wait, who can't do that? Yep, unsaved. And people who are saved but don't really care about being a disciple. That's everyone else. So, Let's get to a little more of the meat here. What was the author's purpose? In, yes. Who pronounced his judgment? Who pronounced his judgment? I believe it was Nero. And Nero came in about this time, and he started, up to then they had had local persecutions, like in Jerusalem, or in Ephesus, or in Caesarea. But now he made an empire-wide persecution of Christians. And Nero was not about putting anybody to death. If you know anything about Nero, he was insane. But be that as it may, you know, to have somebody who is insane or mentally deficient in charge of the most important government of the world, that, that's, that's just wrong. You, I'm glad we don't do anything like that anymore, aren't you? But let's move on. The author's purpose. At the time that Paul wrote to Timothy... Serious changes had occurred in the world. Nero had become the emperor of Rome. He had initiated an empire-sponsored persecution of the Christian church. And now it was worldwide. No longer just isolated pockets like Jerusalem or Thessalonica, but worldwide. And then there was Timothy. Timothy was fading. What do I mean? Fading. He was given up. Timothy is saying, now wait a second. 
my mentor, Paul, is gone. And they're going to kill him. There's now a worldwide persecution for Christians. I'm getting opposition to what Paul taught me in my own church and in the churches surrounding us. You know, they'll do the same thing to me as they do to Paul if I speak out. Maybe it's time to just back away. Did Timothy start strong? Yes, he did. But what's more important to God? Starting strong or finishing strong? This book is about finishing strong. Are there people in this class who can be tempted not to finish strong? Yes. And that temptation is going to grow as persecution increases in this country, and it is. I want you to understand what's going on and what this man was facing. He was being intimidated. If they can arrest Paul, they can arrest me. What else is happening? Well, Timothy was young. He wasn't a seasoned believer, you know, old line believer. He was a young man, probably in, in his 30s. There were people in his church who'd been Christians longer than he had. And well, he was quite young, he was placed in this important position of pastor of the church at Ephesus. Our church is an important church. Can you imagine all of a sudden somebody saying, well, I'm replacing your pastor. Well, who are you going to replace him with? Oh, this guy who just graduated from seminary. Some of us have been in church long enough to know what would happen. Look what he says to, to Timothy in chapter 4, verse 12. Let no one look down on your youthfulness, but rather in speech, conduct, speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity, show yourself an example to those who believe. Don't be intimidated or let them look down on you because you're young. He also didn't have the strongest of constitutions. In fact, in Timothy 5.23, it says, No longer drink water exclusively, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. He was a bit on the sickly side. Those being young and sickly, does that tend to make you more vulnerable to intimidation? Uh, suffering from fear? Yep, it does. And because of that, at the very start of this book, Paul put out a promise. Now, I hate to admit this, but the first part of this promise is much better translated in the King James than it is in the New American Standard. However, the last part of the promise is much better translated in the New American Standard than the King James. So you can pick your poison. Uh, let me explain to you. It's found in 2 Timothy 1.7. For God has not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and love and discipline. Now, you can see in the New American Standard, it's timidity. That word can mean timidity. It can also mean fear. It can also mean panic. And I think fear is clearly the best translation here under the context of this book. There's a context just because of the word. But then also when you apply the context to it, you're going to see as we go through that it, he's going to talk about how I want you to approach people. I want you to approach them in meekness. Now, what does the word meekness mean? To me, it used to be meekness meant weakness. And I want you to see that. Meekness means weakness. But that's not really true. How many of you have ever seen the movie The Black Stallion? 
raise your hand if you've seen the Black Stallions. Some of you have, some of you don't want to admit it. That horse, is it not just rippled with muscle? And it is extremely powerful, whether it's in a short burst or a long run. That boy was able to win that horse over. And although that horse is so powerful, who controlled the horse? The boy. That is the picture of meekness, power under control. So when he is telling us, I want you to do these things in meekness. Now, here again, I think meekness is the translation of the King James. Uh, the numeric standard is gentleness. I think meekness is the, is the best translation. When you do these things, you need to do it in meekness. What does that mean? A mixture of power, love, and discipline or self-control. And so this is what he is trying to get across to Timothy. And we'll look at that more when we get to that one particular verse so we can understand it. But you need to understand, Timothy wants to quit. That's what he wants. And we need to see that. And we need to come to understand that. Now, is there something that happened to help us not want to quit? This is something that I think is, is pretty amazing here. Uh, I'm going to talk about two different things. First thing, a way they have of talking. We say, don't be a quitter. Don't run scared. You see that guy taking off there? He's got yellow all down his back. We tend to say things like that, and, you know, just a way of, of talking. In the Greco-Roman times, you know what the main phrase was about don't quit? Don't be a quitter? Don't lose heart. That's the way they would say it. Don't lose heart. The man who stands firm, he's got heart. Don't lose heart. That means you're a quitter. Now, who can give me, tell me some things, reasons why Jesus died on the cross? Don, I'm going to ask you, tell me some things, reasons why Jesus died on the cross. Redemption, Redemption of the world is one. Because God the Father used him as his lamb, sacrifice. Sacrificial lamb to uh, fulfill prophecy. Did he do that so you wouldn't be a quitter? Well, it doesn't say that in the scriptures, does it? Hebrews. It's not going to be up here, I'm sorry. Last night, God said something about this. Hebrews 12, starting in verse 1. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us. Notice, encumbrance and sin are two different things. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Jesus died, so you won't lose heart. Jesus died, Timothy, so you won't lose heart. Jesus died, Doug Brady, so that you won't give up and lose heart and you will finish strong. That's something that's important to see. The power of the cross was there to prevent Christians from quitting. And we need to understand that. And I, and I want you to see that. Now, Hebrews 12, 1 through 3. 
You're going to see it again as he follows it up in the next verse, verse 8. Is that the, we have verse 8? Yeah. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me, his prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God. And finally, in verse chapter 3, verse 12, he says, indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Wait a second. You just mean Timothy, right? And those people in the first century, right? You don't mean me. I'm going to be persecuted? I think there was a gap in our country of people who weren't persecuted. And that gap is coming to an end. And if you're going to stand strong, you will be persecuted. No, wait, I got a constitution. I've got the ten, uh, the ten Amendments, you know. They protect me. The Bill of Rights. We've now come to the point in our country where that Constitution, that Bill of Rights, say what five people say it says. And if they're blackmailed or if they're selected be- because they are so progressive, that you're going to lose those rights. And those rights are going to be taken away from you. And there's going to be nothing you can do about it. And you're still going to have to stand strong and not quit. And that means, could you be jailed? Could it mean your property confiscated? Can it mean separated from your spouse? Can it mean your children taken off? It means all of those things. They were done in Timothy's time. They're going to be done again. And we need to be ready so that we can finish strong. And that's what this study is going to be about, finishing strong. Now, finally, I want you to see Paul's attempting to encourage Timothy because he recognizes something. In Paul's time, what happens if Timothy's generation gives up? Christianity could be lost. Now, we are living in a time when there are so many Christians in the world, maybe that can't happen. But it could then. And he doesn't want Timothy to drop the baton. Now, what information is contained in this book? Well, the theme of this final letter of Paul is clear. Faithful endurance of the church, even in the midst of persecution from without and a falling away from the faith within, is mandatory if the message of Christ and his church is to continue to generations to follow. How many people are there going to be who you and I know, let's just say, for example... Sometime in September, October in 2023, we get raptured. How many people do you know that would be left behind? Can you imagine being left behind and having to go through the tribulation? Maybe even, I have heard that there was an executive order signed on September 12th. That says, executive order in our country, we have to give up our rights and it's going to be required to happen so that artificial intelligence can be maintained. I can't remember the exact words, but it is scary as hell. Give up our rights as human beings. Give up our rights as human beings. In the way of the transhumanism movement, which is introduced by the mRNA vaccines and further. Now you see where I learned these things. But the fact is, I used to say, no, they're not an executive order. Now, I know it's somebody like Nero who's signing that, but I don't care. This is scary. 
Now, somebody needs to be waiving that executive order at these midterms and in the next election and quoting it and see what people are going to say. But the fact is, that is what is coming. And we've got to be able to stand. Also, you're going to see people in the churches turning away. They're going to give up and they're going to say, I don't believe in that. I don't believe in that anymore. You know, in the first centuries, all they had to say is, Jesus is not God. Okay, you don't have to die. But they wouldn't. And as they would be passing one another, they would whisper one word, Maranatha, until he comes. But that's what is coming. And we need to be prepared for that. So I tried to come up with a way of describing what I really think, how I really think we should view this book, Second Timothy. And I'm going to tell you a fictional story set in a historical setting to try and communicate that concept. In 2018, my father died. I loved my father. I tried to emulate my father. I thought he was the wisest man I had ever met. Can you imagine if two to three weeks after his death, my mother called me and said, Doug, you need to come over to the house. I have something for you that I want to give you. And in fact, it's not me. I was instructed to give it to you. As I came over wondering, what in the world do you have that you're going to give me? She had in her hand a box. And on top of the box was an envelope. And on top of that, on that envelope was written the name Catherine. And I could recognize the writing because my father's writing was very distinct. As a young man, he practiced it over and over, and his handwriting was beautiful. And she handed it to me and said I should read the contents of the letter. Inside this handwritten message, it said, Upon my death, give this package to my son, my only son, Douglas. Make sure he understands that this is my last gift to him but one I expect to be a lasting gift. There is a book inside this box which I have written. He will recognize the handwriting. It contains the wisdom that I have learned over my lifetime and the lessons life has taught me. Tell him I very much want him to read it and then see to it that it gets passed on to his sons. How would I respond to that gift? I am quite sure that the pages of that book would be well-worn and there would be spots that would be tear-stained, but it would be treasured by me. I am convinced that Timothy felt the same way about the book we're about to study. I imagine how, imagine how Timothy must have read and reread the contents of this apostle, taking to heart every word of this epistle. This was the last words of his spiritual mentor and father. You will find that this is the most intimate and moving letter that ever flowed from the pen of the Apostle Paul. There never has been another like Paul. And therefore, we should conclude to cherish these words in his last letter. Let's close in a word of prayer. Father, thank you for the time that we could meet. Thank you for the time that we can study. I pray, Father, that you will make this book come alive to us and that we will see the importance contained in this book. 
Help me to be diligent in studying it. Help me to be faithful in studying it. Help me to be able to share what it says in a way that makes everyone come to know and understand what it means. Now, Father, prepare the hearts of each of us to undertake this study together as a group coming to understand and love this book. Now, Father, I also want to pray that you will raise up cells within our class of people who will pray and who will pray faithfully and diligently that you turn our nation around, that you bring us a revival, an awakening where people's hearts are taken and brought from looking down to looking up to being able to see you and want to please you. I pray, Father, that you will give us courageous men and women who will point out the sin in our nation, not being concerned of the consequences. And that when those consequences tend to come, the rest of us will stand around them to face them with them. And then, Father, you will raise up those who, like the 144,000 in the tribulation period, will do everything they can to share the gospel, whether it's to large groups or small groups or to individual groups. Help us, Father, to be faithful in praying for that army and changing our nation. I pray these things, Father, in the name of your Son, Jesus, and the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen.